Welcome to the Stop Coding Automation Podcast, where we all get together to learn more about automation and software testing with your host, Ajamo Adams. Hey, it's Ajamo, and welcome to another episode of the Stop Coding Automation Podcast. Today, we'll be speaking with James Walker, the CTO and co-founder of Curiosity Software, one of the world's first open testing platforms. James holds a PhD in data visualization and machine learning in the field of visual analytics, a topic that combines humans' problem-solving skills with vast processing power of computers. James has given talks worldwide on the application of visual analytics and has several articles in high-impact journals. He has since applied these groundbreaking approaches to QA focusing on model-based testing and test data management. James has collaborated with numerous startups and enterprise organizations to address quality in software testing. This should be a special one, guys. Check it out. Hey, James. Welcome to Stop Coding. Hey, Ajimo. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an absolute honor. Great to have you on the show. I am really excited to learn a bit more about yourself and your thoughts but before we go any further, did I miss anything in the intro you would like to share with the show? No, I think I think that pretty much sums it up nicely. Thank you for those kind words, by the way. So I guess, you know, where we are today is uh, we've been together, me with my business partners. We have kind of been in the software testing space for probably a little bit too long. <laughs> we had a few companies. We got acquired um, by a company called CA. And kind of while we were there, we were seeing kind of many organizations' mindsets change and evolve. I think the quality problem has got bigger than it's kind of ever been. And I think many organizations now are widely accepting that automation is kind of essential. Um, so, you know, we were kind of seeing a real gap in products, you know, meeting the needs of companies to help them kind of achieve their quality mission. And that's kind of where Curiosity Software is called today was formed. And, you know, we started on that journey about four years ago. We're now a team of 26 and growing, which is kind of super exciting. And I guess just just kind of for the focus of the podcast, we kind of operate in two main areas. One of the areas is called test data automation, which we're probably not going to talk too much about today. But that's all about kind of helping testers and developers get the data they need to achieve their development tasks and their testing tasks. And the other area that we're in is is model-based testing. Um, which we're going to be talking a lot about today. <laughs> it's my favorite subject. And that's all about creating kind of visual images of how an application should work and then auto-generating lots of assets from it. It's a pity we're not doing, we won't be doing too much on the data generation side. Maybe we'll do that another time, but that's something I'm really interested in as well. And I know my listeners are as well, because in uh, a variety of companies, that's one of the things that always I tend to see, especially test data, always tends to be the one thing that might be lacking and having that standardization as well around test data instead of just anonymizing production databases and that type of stuff, you know, making quality data really important, especially in the QA space. But as I said, you know, we probably will jump into that another time. One thing I wanted to ask though was, is so do modeling and model-based testing introduce a new set of skills for testers? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, in short, I guess the answer is yes. <laughs> we, we've been kind of in the space for a while. There's, there's one guy in particular, Paul Gerard, who was kind of one of the fathers of model-based testing. 
And he has this whole notion he talks about where kind of everyone is a modeler. They just might not realize it. You know, if you think about it, when you go to test a system, you kind of have to create almost a mental model of, you know, how does the application work? What are my different journeys through this application? How does it react? You know, when am I successful? When do I trigger different error messages or, you know, get locked out the system, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, you know, most people are kind of modelers without realizing it. You know, the good testers especially end up being amazing modelers. You know, they're going through, they're thinking about all these things already, and they're kind of building a mental image of how the application works, right? So we're just kind of formalizing that process. We're saying, okay, instead of doing this mentally, why don't you draw it in a diagram, in a flow chart? And, you know, from that, you know, there's obviously lots of benefits, right? We can auto-generate test cases. We can generate automation. We can link in test data. But I think what's what's quite interesting is, you know, we run a lot of kind of training and education sessions as we kind of go through introducing the modeling process, right? Because, you know, usually it's a new topic most people aren't aware of. And as we're educating them, what we actually find is that people almost become better testers as a result. They're thinking about different things that they never thought about before in the application. They're thinking about the different journeys, the paths, how a system reacts. So, you know, does it require a new set of skills? I suppose so. Yeah, you kind of have to think a little bit more and you're kind of formalizing the process. You know, there's a bit of thinking how to create and draw the models. But what we typically find is most people, most testers are born modelers. They just don't really realize it. They don't know that they're doing it, I suppose. I think naturally as time progresses, especially with your experience within QA, modeling is something you do, as you said, and us as testers probably don't even realize it. Another thing I wanted to, to ask was, what do you think is the best way to get started with this new approach? Yeah, again, another great question. You know, I think just trying it, just get stuck in and just see what happens. I think what we often find is that people are often scared of new things. And that's true beyond testing. That's true of everything, right? No one really likes change. Even I get scared by change as well. And I think also we see that too many people kind of drive for perfection. When it comes to modeling, you know, you, you kind of get two groups of people. They go into a massive level of granularity and they try and model out everything, you know, within an inch of its life. And it's, it's far too much. It's far too complicated. Or you get people who kind of go at it from a very high level and they just literally draw one block. <laughs> you know, we used to do a lot of uh, a lot of kind of sales training um, with uh, salespeople. And we would ask them to go off and kind of draw a diagram, um, you know, of how to make tea. Um, you know, draw a model of how to do that, right? And there was this one guy who just literally put one block in um, and it was go and ask wife, <laughs> right? Now, you know, that's crazy. Now, was that answer wrong politically? Maybe, um, but, you know, <laughs> the model was still right, okay? And this is the great thing about modeling. You know, there's no right or wrong answer. A model is your interpretation of a system and how it works, right? And the whole point of modeling is to drive communication and collaboration. Now, if you think about, you know, that answer that person did, yes, it drove a lot of uh, conversations coming from it, obviously. But it's all about getting people involved, collaborating, and then improving that model, right? And there's really no wrong answer. It's all about getting people involved and then driving things forward and getting everyone on the same page. So the best way is literally just get started and talk to people about it. That That's definitely the best way we find just more or less get stuck in and it, sometimes that's the best way to learn into it especially with us as, as testers we always 
being introduced to new features or new systems. So we have that open mind when it comes to learning. So I think something like this might be too much different from what we already kind of do day to day. Yeah, I mean, uh, testers are a different breed. They love trying new things. They love breaking things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's the best so, part of yeah. the job. That one. <laughs> <laughs> depends who you're talking to. Sometimes the being the bearer of bad news. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, absolutely, I agree. There was a time when modeling requirements or tests was viewed as too complex, time-consuming, or anti-agile. What have you done to combat this? Yeah, I think if you look at kind of the landscape, different companies, not even within companies, you know, just generally, if you look at the testing landscape, there's so many different methodologies and different processes out there. I'm sure if you looked at, you know, those two and maybe combined it with, you know, the different technologies and automation, there's probably hundreds of millions of different combinations that different companies can choose from, right? And you know, when we first started out, we kind of expected everyone to model from scratch to go into our tool and start to create a model of their application and how it works, right? And, you know, what we quickly realized was actually that most companies are kind of heavily invested in something already. You know, they may be doing BDD, they may be using Selenium, it may be Java, maybe something a bit more primitive, like they're storing their test cases in Excel, right? But, you know, it's very rare that you come across a project that's greenfield that's completely starting from scratch so what we have spent quite a lot of time doing is you know firstly understanding the way that companies work and the way they have been working historically and typically when we go into a project and we start working with a new company you're almost going in there and you're you're trying to unpick you know what have you been doing so far you know what assets do you have um, and it's not to kind of go in there and say this is a bad way of working it's just you want to understand where, where is the good stuff? You know, what have you done already? What have you invested time in? And what we've tried to do is build out accelerators, which will take the assets that a company has been working on. That could be things like Gherkin feature files. It could be things like Swagger specs. It could be things like existing manual test cases. And we can take assets like that and we can help to migrate those assets over to a model. And we can accelerate kind of introducing modeling into those areas, right? So, you know, we we will never go into a project and say, the way you've been doing things is wrong. Absolutely not. You know, maybe it is a little bit, but usually there's some good stuff in there. And what we'll try and do is say, well, you know, we can reuse that good stuff and we can help you move into the world of modeling and help you migrate over. So it's certainly, you know, not a time-consuming operation. You know, it's not a complex operation. And I wouldn't say it's anti-agile either. It's very much... Let's take what you're doing today and help you move into something a little bit better and help to drive efficiencies and improvements from it, right? There's a lot of companies that do like the no-code approach for this. For instance, just providing out-of-the-box libraries of like actions. Why have you retained the ability to add and customize the code? Yeah, good good question. So I think... You know, in, in in the testing industry, we've kind of been sold too many pipe dreams, I think. It's, you know, and I think generally in life, something sounds good too good to be true. It probably is. And to me, you know, a lot of these tools that are kind of promising low, you know, low code, no code, it kind of falls under that bracket that we're kind of making false promises, I think. And, you know, we've been into a few companies where we've ended up kind of picking up the pieces from, you know, these kind of promises that have been sold, Right. Now, that's not to say that no code and low code is a bad thing. You know, if someone has no automation experience, 
or you know they have very limited automation today it can certainly get you somewhere and we have seen success with that you know for people starting to automate basic journeys and basic paths through that application you can certainly achieve that right we've kind of selected what we like to call almost a developer centric model it's not that you need experience in automation but it certainly does help you know if you have no experience of automation you can certainly go in and create assets and you can create models and you can create automated tests but for the complex stuff you need custom code right if you look at most enterprise organizations it's much more complex than just going into a field and entering some text um, or clicking a but- button and asserting um you know a message has been displayed on the screen right there's often lots of kind of advanced widgets you know like carousels or drag and drop or it may be that we need to go off into a different application like a mainframe an AS400 or we may need to go and call some API which has got some really weird authentication on it right all of those tasks need custom code and there's no way that any no code or low code solution can fix those problems right so we've kind of gone with a hybrid approach you know we want to help automation engineers uh, by kind of offloading the burden of automating simple stuff and you know we'd much rather offload that complexity to anyone else who's involved in the project and really you know what we're trying to do is empower automation engineers that so they can focus on the bits that matter these complex operations these complex things that are really hard to automate and that is a much better use of their time and also talking to them is much more interesting <laughs> you know who wants to be sat there writing really simple page objects all day when you could be sat there taking on you know something that's really challenging like a like a really hard part of the application and that's really rewarding actually it seems like it will be quite good for you know advanced uh test auto- um, automation engineers and as the complexity in free mugs build you do need that core knowledge you know so I, I totally follow what you're saying there i think that hybrid is a really good approach no but you know kind of using you have, kind of have your cake and eat it really you know you have you have both ways to kind of get in there and you know, if a company comes in and they're using your application and their automation processes is in its infancy, they can still use what you guys have and get it wrapped up in the best way they can. And as they learn, they'll be able to get more and more and more complex. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think, I think one of the things that's often quite overlooked, especially in the automation realm, is you know, automation frameworks are actually a piece of you know, they're a piece of code as well. It's basically, a, you know, something that's a piece of source code, right? So it needs to follow the same standards and, you know, everything good that the actual underlying application probably does as well, right? Like coding conventions, being stored in Git, having pull requests, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, you know, that's really paramount. But often what we find is that, you know, the automation framework is kind of treated as it's almost like the Wild West. You know, anything goes, anyone could commit anything. But, you know, having those same kind of standards as, you know, the underlying, you know, application and, you know, having everyone involved in the automation, I think that's paramount. Um, absolutely. Does Test Modeler provide drivers and libraries? Yeah, so, yeah, we do. So we have kind of an open approach. So there's, you know, what we kind of live in the world of the API and we kind of live in the world where, you know, there's so many things on Git now, right? You know, if you want to go off and do some visual testing, you'll pull down some kind of visual testing framework. Um, you know, if you want to do CICD, you do something like Jenkins, which is open source, right? You know, if you want to uh, add some accessibility testing to your automation framework, there's many different libraries to do that as well. 
So we have kind of kept things as open as possible. You know, companies can either bring their own automation framework. They've got one already. And that's great, you know, especially if it's quite well established and people are already familiar with the technology. Or we can provide open source ones for people to get started. Um, But with those frameworks that are connected into Test Modeler, people can add anything they want. So any external library that exists could be added in. And I think that's, that's just the way it has to be now, right? If you look at the software development industry, beyond testing, you know, actually developing software, most applications are just constructed of different libraries assembled together with kind of a piece of unique code in there that's kind of, you know, the unique business functionality for that application, right? And I think in the testing industry, we should be doing exactly the same. You know, let's go and pull down whatever libraries we can to help us. Let's include them in our frameworks and let's, you know, help them to kind of bootstrap our way forward in, you know, getting lots of benefits in terms of efficiency and all the cool stuff they can do as well, right? Um, So yeah, we absolutely do. Even beyond modeling, I think that's absolutely paramount for any successful project. You know, why would you reinvent the wheel when you could go and use something that's great already? Just plug it in, right? Looking more on the team side, what typical changes might you see in in team structure with this approach? How do roles, responsibilities, and the nature of cross-team collaboration change that you have seen? Yeah, great, great question. You know, people are kind of the most important piece, actually. You can introduce the best tool in the world. But if you don't help people learn and, you know, navigate kind of the political landscape, then you're not going to get any success anywhere, right? Now, you know, we often start with the team who either currently owns testing or where, you know, the current pain point is, right? That could be a pain point like, you know, we're not automating enough or our test coverage is too low or we're struggling with test maintenance, right? So we'll often start with our team and we'll start to introduce modeling into helping them address the problems they have, right? Now, what we often find over time is there's almost a natural shift with that. You know, either it goes right um, or it goes left. You know, the most successful projects we've had is where um, business analysts and product owners have got involved and they started to create models, um, you know, as a requirement is being scoped, right? We may have started with the testing team, but they've kind of seen the benefits the testing team is having And the organization is now thinking, had some success here, we could probably get more success by shifting left a little bit. And I think, you know, we always kind of start with why are we doing this? And, you know, we often ask companies, you know, why do you want to introduce the tool, right? And nine times out of 10, the goal is that they want to drive quality throughout the software development lifecycle, right? So, you know, if you think about the software development lifecycle, you know, the journey kind of starts with a requirement, okay? And, you know, requirements themselves actually need to have some quality baked into them. If you look at requirements, you can get things like ambiguities. You may have incomplete requirements. They may be incorrect, et cetera, et cetera. And it's quite interesting, though. There are some tools on the market that can actually help with that now. Um, There's one we work with, which is called Scope Master. And that will actually apply automated requirement analysis on top of text. And it will give scores and recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. You can improve that requirement, right? But I think generally, you know, the goal here should be throughout this whole software development lifecycle, we're kind of driving this quality narrative. Um, and I think what we see with modeling is it really brings the teams together. You know, it's all about collaborating, getting everyone on the same page, having a clear, coherent understanding and having a visual image which represents that. Right. So in terms of the team structure, you know, we often find teams become, you know, they almost become closer together. They start collaborating more and they start talking more as well, right? 
And I think this is kind of more important than ever. You know, if you look at a lot of workspaces now, you know, especially since COVID has got involved, really teams are more further apart than they've ever been, you know, both geographically, but also, you know, time zones are more prevalent, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think having tools there that can help people collaborate is is really essential, right? And we have seen that kind of in the market as well. Um, so it is it is quite interesting. But I think by and large, you know, we're trying to help bring teams together. And that's the main structure we see, structural change, you know, teams moving closer together, um, the responsibilities and their roles kind of merging, you know, everyone becoming, you know, part of that quality narrative and trying to introduce quality to the different kind of aspects and the different assets that they're working on and generating, right? That's exactly how I think when it comes to quality. I believe we are the custodians of quality being in QA and quality need to be thought of first. I always try to push uh, as left as much as I can when it comes to the software development lifecycle, especially these days with applications being as uh, API heavy and bringing in so many different elements. You know, it's, it's the monolith uh, type of applications is almost like a thing of the past now. And, you know, there's microservices and all sorts of things going on under the hood. So big fan of putting quality first and embedding it in a way that developers and QA engineers could collaborate as early in the process as possible. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting. I mean, before COVID, we were doing a lot of traveling um, to the Netherlands, talking to various companies. Um, and I think the really interesting thing there is, you know, the role of testers had almost kind of disappeared, you know, in terms of having kind of distinct testers who were, you know, their job was kind of a checkbox exercise, right? And what they were doing instead was, you know, they were almost hiring kind of tr- quality-driven scrum masters, um, you know, and their job role was to educate and almost drive quality in individual scrum teams. So it's kind of what you're saying. That's kind of what they were doing. They were just taking it, you know, to within the team. You know, let's let's have someone who is going to lead the quality narrative. Let's hire them as a scrum master. But as part of that, they're going to be making sure that everyone is actually focusing on quality, as you say, right? So I think some companies are really taking it, you know, they're doing some interesting things um, and they're definitely taking it up a notch in terms of, you know, what you just said there, actually implementing it and doing it, which is is fantastic. I, I 100% agree. Everyone should be doing that, right? Your tool is called Test Modeler, but is it about more than just tests? What about the business side and the broader benefits? Yeah, great, great question. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when when we first kind of invented the tool, you know, we kind of envisioned it just being for testing. But I think as we got involved with projects, we kind of saw success far beyond just just it being for testing and creating tests. You know, I think at its heart, you know, we are a modeling tool, uh, which anyone can use to build a flowchart of how something should work. Okay. And, you know, sometimes we'll talk to organizations and they'll kind of be using a tool like Visio or a BPMN tool, um, you know, to start creating their requirements. And I think if you look at the latest kind of product owner certification, um, you know, they talk heavily about modeling and the benefits of it from kind of a requirements perspective, right? And, you know, what we generally find is that people love the visual approach. It's sometimes, you know, it's not even about generating the test. They just love you know, getting something down, having it formalized in terms of how it works. Okay. Now, you know, it's quite funny. We were working with, gosh, they were a chipset company. I think it was in the Netherlands as well, actually. 
And we were in a room. There was probably about two people in there. There was certainly one business analyst in there. And they were specifying how a module worked on a very popular, let's say, embedded device. And someone walking by came in the room. You know, they, it was all glass windows and they looked through and they saw a model there. They were interested. They sat down and they immediately identified the model that that person had created was actually completely wrong. Well, they thought it was wrong. And then that kind of led to the entire team coming into the meeting. And there was a whole, you know, there was a whole chat about this. It was quite amusing. You know, it probably went on for about 30 minutes to an hour. And they were going backwards and forwards debating, you know, whether that was how, you know, the system works and they were refining the model and including everyone's feedback in it, right? But I think that highlights the power of modeling. You know, it's that visual element. Let's get everyone on the same page. Let's talk about it. You know, let's understand how the system works. And, you know, that's that's great for, you know, existing functionality. It's also really important for legacy projects as well. You know, if you think about all these mainframe systems that, you know, predominantly kind of run the world of finance, you know, there's such a lack of understanding how these systems work, right? And we've worked with many of these companies to help them create their models and facilitate that and just getting that clear, coherent understanding down. So I think, you know, it's certainly not just about tests. It's more visual approach of having a clear, coherent understanding. That's kind of the main the main power of modeling, I would say. What are the limitations in the types of systems you can create tests for in this approach? Some things don't make sense, right? They don't make sense to be modeled. And I think whenever we start anything, again, this is beyond modeling, you know, we kind of always ask a question, you know, what is the value of what we're doing? Does it make sense? Why are we doing this? Quite an important question. And what we're trying to do is kind of, you know, we're always trying to maximize the impact we can have given the amount of value we put into something, right? So many things happen or, you know, they get implemented or built. It really shouldn't have happened in the first place or they have, you know, little to no value of it being done, Right. You know, if you think about it from a testing perspective, if it's a piece of functionality that's very low risk, you know, maybe it's been in the product for, you know, decades or, you know, a few years and there's never really been any problems with it. But also it never changes. No one ever changes it, never gets adjusted. So, you know, why would we test that piece of functionality or at least, you know, test it, you know, really extensively? Maybe we'll have a few smoke tests going in and out but there's really no value in testing that part of the system really extensively, right? We can probably assume that if there was, you know, something wrong with it, probably would have been identified by now if it was actually being used by customers, right? So, you know, I think coming back to that question, why are we doing something? And what is the value of doing something is kind of the key question. And that is the real limitation, I would say, you know, if it doesn't make sense to model it, why would you do it? So asking that question can really help. In terms of kind of applications we can automate and different kind of, you know, different kind of tech architectures, et cetera. We've worked on many projects where we've done, you know, mainframe automation, done API testing, we've done performance testing, UI testing across different, you know, different environments, different operating systems, et cetera, et cetera. You know, usually there's some kind of tool out there to automate the type of application that's being tested. And then it's kind of working backwards. How can we integrate that into modeling? So from a tech perspective, I wouldn't say there's any limitations, but certainly from a should we be doing this, certainly there are limitations as there should be. Yeah, it's more or less don't do it unless it's needed. And I think these are the things that should be evaluated before you step into any project, I guess. 
uh, just making sure, you know, the tool is, is fit for purpose and, you know, you'll get what you want out of it. So, yeah, I, I think that's definitely something that um, preemptively will need to be looked at. Uh, before we go, is there any actionable advice you can give someone about using model-based testing? And what's the best way to find you, contact you, or learn more about your work? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, so I guess, you know, the actionable piece here, you know, if you're interested in modeling, you can head over to our website, which is testmodeler.io. And I think the greatest piece is just kind of educate yourself on modeling. You know, we've kind of gone through quite an extensive process of creating lots of YouTube videos, got one series, which is kind of modeling 101. And the whole goal there is to teach people about modeling. We, we do go through it in the context of the tool, but the main driver there is to help you understand what is modeling, why should you model, and also how to model as well, right? Um, and also getting some value from it in terms of generating tests and generating automation. So if you're interested, certainly head over to the website. You can learn about modeling. Um, we also offer a free trial where you can sign up through the website. And I think that's for um, three or four weeks, that trial. And that should certainly be enough time to help people get started and to actually generate some pieces from the tool. Thank you, James, for your thoughts and brilliance. For more about this episode, head on over to stopcoding.co.uk forward slash podcast. So that's it for another episode of the Stop Coding Automation Podcast. I'm Ajamo, and my mission is to help you succeed in software testing and automation and help you get that automation tested job. As always, keep winning, keep testing. Laters. Thanks for listening to the Stop Coding Automation Podcast. Head on over to stopcoding.co.uk for show notes, amazing blog articles, and all you need to get that automation testing job. Don't forget to subscribe to Stop Coding to continue your testing journey. 